0: How much does God love one person? How much does God love one family? How does God communicate His love to people that need to hear of His love? Well, answers to those questions are found in our text this morning. We are continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we've come to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 8. And we are working our way through this wonderful New Testament book. I had someone tell me last week that we are going at a slow pace. And my response to that is, I'm not in a hurry. Someone said, how long is it going to take? I said, well, there's 28 chapters and we're not halfway through it yet. And we're coming up on on about a year, so it's going to take a while. But what are we going to skip, right? It's just full of wonderful, wonderful truths that we need to remember as a family of faith. Acts chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. We believe the Word of God. And we are grateful for it. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. The Bible says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we are grateful, Lord, for your word. Lord, truth with no mixture of air. We are grateful, Lord, that you care enough about us to speak to us. And we come to this moment, Lord, in our time of worship... With, with bowed hearts, surrendered hearts, expectant hearts. God, we want you to speak to us. We want you to transform us in these moments. So, so, Father, I pray that you would move by your Spirit in this place, that the Holy Spirit of God would open the eyes of our hearts and help us to understand the truths of Scripture. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint me as I preach and anoint the hearers today as we seek to, to understand and learn and ultimately to obey. And Lord, in all of this, I pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the one who provides salvation for us, the one who provides forgiveness for us. We are so grateful for you, Jesus, and we praise your, your great name today. And we ask and pray all of this in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, Acts chapter 10 is a major moment in redemptive history. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said the gospel would begin in Jerusalem as the church is birthed there on the day of Pentecost and would go into Judea and Samaria and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Acts chapter 10 is when we see the gospel take that leap from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, To the Gentile world. This was a major moment in redemptive history and it revolves around a man named Cornelius who was serving the Roman army in a town called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was a seaport on the Mediterranean coast that was rebuilt by Herod the Great and named after Caesar Augustus. It was about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about 30 miles north of Joppa, which comes into play when we work our way through this chapter in future weeks. This city, Caesarea, was the the center of, of the Roman administration of the province of Palestine and served as a showpiece, if you will, for Roman culture. It even had a temple in the city, dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Now all that's going to come into play as we talk about Peter in future weeks, going to the city with the good news. Uh, The population there had more Gentiles than it had... Jews. And so this was a key city, but it was a city that the Jews didn't really care much for. Uh, Most Jews would not want to go to Caesarea, but God would call Peter to go to Caesarea for a very specific purpose. And it again revolves around this man Cornelius and his family. Now who is Cornelius? It says there in verse 1 that he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army who had charge of, of 100 men. Sometimes in in farther outposts, the centurion would, would uh, have charge over 100 to 300 men. But, but generally, a centurion would watch over 100 Roman soldiers. And it mentions here this cohort was an Italian cohort. Now, a cohort was a group of soldiers that numbered 600. So in a cohort, you would have six different centurions overseeing the soldiers. And the centurions were well-respected, well-paid Uh, of of some means and importance in their role. And, and, And Cornelius was a centurion of this cohort of 600 men, probably that came from Italy, to serve there in that area. And Cornelius is interesting because we see him have an encounter here with God, and eventually in Acts chapter 10 he has an encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I studied this passage, I saw something exciting. I saw that Cornelius is an illustration, a a vivid picture of three Bible verses. In other words, as you study what happens in his life, these Bible verses I'm going to share with you really come to life and help us to understand them all the more. And so I want to share with you the three critical Bible verses that Cornelius and this situation illustrate and help us to understand. For example, number one, Cornelius is an illustration of Romans 3.20. And there's a phrase in Romans 3.20 that says this, By works of the law, no human being will be justified. And Cornelius illustrates that. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now in Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul is making the case that all have sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way we can be made righteous is to place our faith in Christ who gives us right standing with God as a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something we achieve. It's a gift that we receive. And he makes the case in Romans 3.20 that no one will be justified. No one will be saved. No one will be made right with God by works of the law. No one's going to earn it. And that's the point that Paul is making. And Cornelius... Pictures this. I want you to notice how religious someone can be and still not be saved. Cornelius was religious, but he wasn't saved. And we know he wasn't saved because God arranges later in Acts chapter 10 for Peter to come and share the gospel with him so he could be saved. But he's very religious. Notice how religious he is. You can be, listen, devoted to a religion and not be saved. It says there in verse 2. That Cornelius was a devout man. That word devout in the original Greek language could be translated pious or even religious, the way we use it in our culture today. Someone's a religious person. They're, they're devoted to, to, to devoted to their religious belief or religious ideas. And, and it says here that Cornelius was a, a devout man, a pious man, a religious man. He he was devoted to his religion, but he was not. Saved. You can be sincere and devoted to religion and not have a relationship with God. Cornelius shows us that. Secondly, you can attend religious services and not be saved. Notice what it says there in verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God or a God-fearer. That phrase, feared God or god fear," is used throughout the New Testament to speak of those who were not Jews. They were Gentiles by ethnicity, but they ascribed to the religion of Judaism. And so Cornelius saw something in Judaism that was appealing to him, and so he chose to pursue God through the religion of Judaism. And God-fearers were known in the first century to actively attend the local synagogue, And so probably without question, Cornelius, as a God-fearer, went to the synagogue often to, to seek God through Judaism and be a part of those religious services. And yet, he wasn't saved. You can be a part of religious services and not be saved. You can like going to church and not be saved. There's a third thing here you can be devoted to your family's well-being and not be saved. Notice what it says there in verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household and so it appears that Cornelius involved his family in Judaism and involved his family in seeking God through the religion of Judaism. He cared about the well-being of his family. He cared about the spiritual well-being of his family and wanted them involved in his, in his religion, in his activity, in his attending of services. So he cared about his family's well-being. That's noble, but it doesn't save you. You can be here today and be a devout family person. You take care of your kids, you're faithful to your spouse, You you watch over them, you provide for them, you you protect them, you care about them, you love them, you care about your family's well-being, but that doesn't mean you're saved. There's another thing here. You can be a generous giver and not be saved. Did you notice what it said in verse 2? It said that Cornelius gave alms generously to the people. So according to the dictates of Judaism found in the Old Testament... uh, Cornelius gave generously to the needs of others. He gave alms and probably gave to the synagogue to provide for the needs of that religious community. And so the Bible says that Cornelius was a very generous giver, but he wasn't saved. Is giving important? Yes, the Bible commands us to give. It's a vital part of our our life, but it doesn't save you. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, He's not going to say, Show me your checkbook. Let me see how much you gave. And if you gave a certain amount, man, you're in. Come on into heaven. You're a generous giver. Doesn't work like that. He was a generous giver, but he was not saved. He needed to hear the gospel. And there's a final thing here. You can be a person of prayer and not be saved. In verse 2 it says that he prayed continually to God. So he was fervent in seeking after God, according to Judaism. And he prayed, the Bible says, continually. prayer characterizes life. Prayer is a powerful thing and a wonderful thing and something that should characterize all of our lives. But prayer in and of itself doesn't save you. There are people who think if if they just pray a a set of ritual prayers over and over again and repeat a, a prayer over and over again, then God somehow will accept them. But prayer doesn't save you in and of itself. You have to respond to Jesus as you hear the good news about Jesus Christ. Cornelius prayed continually in his religion, but he was not saved. So did you notice in this text how religious someone can be and still be far from God, still lost and in their sins? Let it be a warning to all of us in this room. Just because you're active in, in, in attendance in a worship service and active in giving and, and praying and all of those sort, certain things, and you take care of your family, it doesn't mean you're saved. What have you done with Christ? That's the key question. And so Cornelius illustrates, listen, you can try to achieve righteousness by the works of the law, but you'll never be justified by keeping the works of the law. Because the standard is perfection. Let me illustrate. Let's just say that a 16-year-old in our church hears of a prestigious scholarship that is given by a prestigious university. And this scholarship is incredible. All expenses paid. Wonderful education. Looks good on your resume. Sets you up for the future. And the 16-year-old in our church says, "I, I want that scholarship. So they go and sit down with the scholarship committee and say, and say can, I, can I learn of the requirements to be considered for this scholarship? And they say, well, the requirements are pretty simple. You have to be perfect. You have to ace every test. You can't miss one question. You have to score perfect on your SATs and your ACTs. You have to be perfect on all your homework assignments. You have to be perfect to receive this scholarship. Now let's just imagine for a moment that this 16-year-old is highly motivated and, 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 and really driven. And says, you know what, that is daunting, but I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do my best and apply myself. I'm going to study and I'm going to seek to ace every test and score perfect on the ACT and, and perfect on the SAT. And, and I want to, I want to get, get to a perfect standard, achieve a perfect standard so I can receive this wonderful scholarship. But before that 16-year-old leaves the room, the committee says, oh, one more thing. It, it's retroactive. We're going to go back to your kindergarten days all the way back. And from kindergarten to this moment, you have to have to be perfect in that, too. Ace every test, every homework assignment, perfect on everything. Now, probably in that moment, that teen- teenager would think something like this. By the time I realized I had to be perfect, it was too late. I look back over my kindergarten through 10th grade year, and I've, I've not scored perfect. I'll never receive that scholarship. Well, listen to me. If you're going to try to achieve salvation by keeping the law, the standard is perfection. And it's perfection that is achieved through your entire life. Can anyone in here say, I've been perfect my entire life? You see, by the time you realize you have to be perfect, it's too late, isn't it? You've already blown it. So if you say, I'm going to try to achieve my salvation, you've already fallen short. It's too late. So you'll never be saved by keeping the law because you can't do it perfectly. You have fallen short. You need to receive salvation granted to you from God as a gift through His Son, Jesus Christ. So Cornelius illustrates that, that by works of the law no human being will be justified. He was trying to keep the Ju- Judaic law, but he was not saved. Here's a second verse that Cornelius illustrates. He illustrates Romans 10:17. And in Romans 10:17, there's a phrase there that says, faith comes by hearing. Saving faith comes by hearing, explicitly about. Jesus Christ. Now, this verse and this idea merits an explanation and, and, and it merits that, that we talk about the implication. First of all, let, let's explain what it means that faith comes by hearing. And Here's the phrase I want you to, to get fixed in your mind and in your heart. People cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ. For Cornelius to be saved... He would have to hear the gospel. And later in chapter 10, we'll get to that in a a, a few weeks. Later in chapter 10, Cornelius hears the gospel from Peter and is saved at that moment. But he could not be saved apart from faith in Christ. And he could not place his faith in Christ until he heard about Christ, the good news concerning Christ. So people cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ, which leads us to uh, an important question. I hear this question asked often, and I'm going to phrase the question in your notes the way I hear it asked most of the time. The question goes something like this. What about people in our world who have never heard of Jesus? They're, They're living in some remote area of the world, never heard about Jesus. If they die, are they innocent? Do they go to heaven because they've never had an opportunity to respond to Christ? What about those people It's interesting. A couple months ago, I learned about an island in the Indian Ocean called Sentinel Island. And on Sentinel Island, there is an indigenous tribe living there, uh, untouched by the outside world for the most part. That island is under the control of the Indian government. And because the Indian government doesn't want anyone to disturb the culture and customs of this indigenous tribe on that island, they don't allow anybody to go to that island. In 2004, after a tsunami decimated that area, a helicopter flew over because someone wanted to see how this tribe was faring after the tsunami. And the helicopter came near the shore, and one of the tribesmen ran out with a bow and arrow, pointing it menacingly at the helicopter, as if to say, if you come on this island, we're going to shoot at you. Hostile. And so there's this, this tribe in the middle of the Indian Ocean, untouched for the most part by the outside world, No missionaries have been there that we're aware of. What about them? They've they've never heard of Jesus. What about the person in the middle of the Congo in Africa or in the middle of the Amazon rainforest in South America that's never heard about Jesus Christ? Are they innocent? Well, first of all, let's think about this logically. If someone was living remotely and they never heard of Jesus and they die and go to heaven because they never heard of Jesus, if that's true then the best thing Jesus could have done on the mountain before he ascended to heaven was not give us a commission to go tell the world about Jesus. The best thing he could have done was wipe out his disciples so no one would ever hear about Jesus. Because if no one hears about Jesus, then everybody gets to go to heaven according to that line of thought, right? So instead of saying, go to all the world and preach the gospel, he should have said, keep your mouth shut. David Platt shares this illustration. Let's just say that you're on a college campus and an international student walks by and you you say, uh, hey, welcome to our nation, welcome to America. We're glad you're here pursuing your education. Have you ever heard about Jesus? And let's just say they say, no, never heard of Jesus. Well, if they're innocent, then you should say, run. Plug your ears. If anybody gets near you that wants to talk about Jesus, you run from them. If that line of thinking is true. If someone is living in a remote area and has never heard of Jesus Christ, do they die and go to heaven? The answer is no. Listen, because they're not innocent. They're not innocent. So Ed, where are you getting that from? I'm getting that from the Bible. Look there in your notes. No one can claim innocence because no one can claim ignorance. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to show you this. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Back up to verse 18. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now look in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The Bible says no one is innocent, no one has an excuse, because God has revealed himself through the created order. He's invisible. He can't be seen with our physical eyes, but he has made himself known, his attributes known through creation. The sun, the stars, the the galaxies, the mountains, the oceans, the 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 hills, the valleys, the plains, the canyons. God has created it all as if to say, there is a God that made all of this. And He deserves your worship. God has made Himself known through creation and conscience. Romans 2 says in verse 15 that we all have a conscience. This sense of right and wrong, this sense of justice and fairness... And we have it because the creator of our, of our souls is a moral lawgiver. Because God is moral. We all have an innate sense of morality that there is right and wrong. And that conscience stamped on our, on our being is a pointer to the reality, the existence of God himself. So God has made himself known, the Bible says, through creation and conscience so that no one has an excuse Here's what it says. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about this. No one will be able to approach the judgment seat of God justly pleading, if only I had known you existed, I would surely have served you. That excuse is annihilated. No one can lightly claim insufficient evidence for not believing in God because God has given us so much evidence in the created order. So wait, why do people... Have that evidence and do not respond to God. Well, If you look there in your notes, the problem is that people suppress the light God has given them. Look what it says in Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here's what the Bible is saying. That people have been given the evidence of God's existence through the created order and through conscience, but people suppress the truth because they don't want to bow to the Creator. They want to pursue other religious avenues that allow them to worship themselves. themselves That allow them to pursue their own desires. They don't want to bow to the Creator. So God gives us evidence, but we, we suppress it. We don't, want to, we don't want to follow the light where it leads. And Romans says that's the condition of many people in humanity. So listen to me. I want to be clear. If someone in on Sentinel Island or in the Congo or in the Amazon rainforest, dies having never heard of Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in that awful place called hell. Because they're not innocent. They've suppressed the light God has given them. And you say, wait, that's kind of harsh. That's what Romans 1 teaches, but there's good news. Keep following along. Listen. If people respond to the light they have... God will give them more light. So God has revealed himself through creation and conscience. And if we say, you know what, there is a God. I want to know that God. I want to to worship that God. I want to follow the true God. I I want to seek after him. If people will do that, God will see to it that they get more light eventually hearing the gospel. But how do you know that, Cornelius? Cornelius illustrates... That if you respond to the light God gives you, God will give you more light. Look what it says back in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This is fascinating. It says in verse 3, About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, you're not saved by keeping the law, but God sees in your pursuit that you are trying to know the true God. You are seeking light. So I'm about to give you some more light. I'm going to arrange for you to hear the gospel from a man named Peter. And so as Cornelius responds to the light, seeking the one true God, trying to find him through Judaism, God says, I'm going to give you more light. And if anyone on Sentinel Island or in the Congo, or in the Amazon rainforest, if they respond to the light that God has given them, I believe with all my heart, based upon Acts 10, that God will see to it they have more light and will eventually hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Sam Storm says it like this, If by God's gracious and sovereign enablement and enlightenment any unbeliever responds positively to the revelation of God in nature and conscience, God will take the necessary steps to reach him or her with the good news of Christ, whereby they may be saved. In this text, Acts 10, God is taking the necessary steps to give Cornelius more light so he can hear the gospel. Amen? And so Cornelius is an example of, of Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing. He has to hear the the gospel to be saved. He can't just be innocent of Jesus and be saved. He has to hear about Jesus explicitly and place his faith in him explicitly to be saved. So here's the implication, and this brings it home to all of us in this room. And it's sobering. The implication of this truth is for someone to hear and believe the gospel, someone has to tell them. For Cornelius to be saved, someone had to tell him. Now remember, in this text, in Acts 10, an angel appears to him. Isn't it interesting that the angel doesn't share the gospel with him? He could have, right? The angel could have shared with him the story of Jesus Christ, but the angel doesn't. The angel says, I want you to send for a man named Peter. He'll come and share the message with you. Why? Why? Because God wants redeemed people telling others that they can be redeemed too. That's how God has set it up. It is up to us to share the good news with a lost and dying world. If people are going to be saved, they have to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what it says in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verse 14 or verse 13 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from Hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. For someone to be saved, they have to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ, they have to hear of Christ. For them to hear of Christ, someone has to tell them about Christ. For someone to tell them about Christ, someone has to go and open up their mouth and say, Jesus saves sinners. Question. Question. This is a question I grapple with and and, am convicted by if everyone lived their Christian life in the church the same way you live your Christian life, how many people would hear the gospel? If everyone just lived exactly like you do, how many people would hear the good news about Jesus in our community, in our world? convicting question isn't it the implications of cornelius are staggering he couldn't just do some religious things and be saved he had to hear about jesus and someone had to tell him our world is lost and dying and people are perishing and spending eternity separated from god in that awful place called hell they have to hear about christ and we are commissioned to tell them not the angels we are commissioned to tell them, there's a final verse that Cornelius illustrates. He's a, a powerful illustration of Romans three twenty: by works of the law, no human being will be justified. He's an illustration of Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing. He had to hear the gospel. But third and last, Cornelius illustrates John three sixteen: God so loved. The world. If you need to be reminded this morning of God's love for humanity, look no further than Acts chapter 10. In this passage, God's love is on display. I want you to notice with me the extraordinary links God goes to in this passage for Cornelius and his family. First of all, in verse 3 of Acts 10, God sends an angel to appear to Cornelius and say, you need to send for someone to come to your house so you can, they can share with you the message. He gives specific instructions to Cornelius in verses 4 through 8. So he will send the people to Joppa to go and fetch Peter. In verses 9 through 16, God gives Peter a vision to prepare him to take the gospel to Cornelius. And then God gives Peter specific instructions so that he will encounter Cornelius and his family, verses 17-29. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks, so we'll get there. I'm just kind of giving you a broad overview of the chapter. And then when Peter arrives and speaks to Cornelius and his family of the gospel, the Holy Spirit moves with power while he is sharing. So God is, is moving in mighty ways in this passage. God is going to extraordinary lengths for Cornelius and his family. You might say it like this. God works in powerful, mysterious ways in this passage because of his love for a Gentile family. How much does God love one person? How much does God love one family? Enough to do all of this so they can hear the gospel. Enough to orchestrate circumstances so that they can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's really good news for me. That God loves Gentiles as well as Jews because Gentiles are non-Jews and I'm not a Jew, I'm a Gentile. I'm glad God loves Jews and I'm thrilled that God loves Gentiles. How about you? And his love for a Gentile, Cornelius, an Italian, a Roman soldier, centurion, is displayed by going to extraordinary lengths so he can hear the gospel from the lips of Peter himself. Which brings us all back to our own lives, our own families. I want you to understand this morning that God's love for us moved Him to provide salvation for us. You say, Wade, does God love me with all my baggage and my past and all the stuff going on and My failures and my shortcomings and my disappointments. My immorality. The times I've just blown it. My selfishness. Does God love me? John 3.16 answers with a resounding yes. For God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles, that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Him. To die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. That whosoever should believe in Him, Christ, will be saved. Not perish, but will experience everlasting life. Yes, dear friend, listen to me. God loves you and He loves your family. You know what I'm looking at this morning? I'm looking at a bunch of Corneliuses and their families. And you're here today and God has intersected your life through His sovereignty, through His providence, so that you are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ right now. God loves you. Never lose sight of the fact that God gave His Son for you. He provided salvation for you. He knocked on the door of your heart and drew you to himself because he loves you. It's interesting. This morning we're commissioning three mission teams. Last service 9:30 we commissioned a team going to Japan and a team going to uh, a young lady going to Wales. She's a one-person team. And 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 after we get through this morning at the end of this service we're going to commission a a mission team going to Sioux City, Iowa. And so we got one group going that way to to, uh, Wales, and a group going that way towards Japan, and a group going that way north towards Iowa. And here's the awesome reality. In Japan, and in Iowa, and in Wales, whoever we encounter, whoever our teams encounter, they can look them in the face and say, God loves you wow it is really really good news isn't it and so Cornelius is a wonderful illustration of the verse God so loved the world so what does that mean for us in this room how how can we sum up Acts chapter 10 the first eight verses let me give you the summary statement and we'll be through Moved by God's love for the world, we should give our lives to share the good news with the world. Let me say it again. Moved, compelled, driven by God's love for the world, we should give our lives to share the good news with the world. How much does God love one person? How much does God love one family? Enough to do all that He did in Acts chapter 10. And I want you to know that God is still saving people today. And He wants to use us to get the good news to them.